resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Resuming Debate, and, and welcome back over our after our Christmas holiday hiatus. Uh, I'm very pleased uh, that we have a, a, a guest today that is likely known to many of you. Uh, there are, I think, very few people that are kind of go-to commentators on both sides of the Canada-US border. One of those people is David Frum here to have a conversation with us about uh, kind of what's happening in the world as it relates to uh, US politics and what kinds of strands we're seeing in terms of debate and discussion in the United States and their possible impact on global events. So David Frum, thank you so much for uh, joining us for this conversation. Thank you. Good to, good to talk to you. Great. Okay. Uh, so, so David, to, to start us off, um, regular listeners will be will be familiar with with my view that we're sort of in the middle of a new global cold war, and our principal adversaries in that struggle are China, Russia, and Iran. Uh, I'm curious how you see that assessment, the applicability of cold war categories, uh, and how you think this emergent global conflict is viewed uh, similarly or differently in the two major parties in the United States. Yeah. Well, I, um, it's an interesting frame. I, I don't know. I, I'd have to give it some thought. Um, what I'd say is with, with Russia right now, we have very much not a Cold War. It's very much a hot shooting war. Um, with Iran, the situation is more Cold War-like. Um, there is a little bit of shooting, but there's also some cooperation. Um, as the Wall Street Journal reported on the very day that you and I are recording, the United States did warn the Iranians about this terrorist bombing that killed 83 or 84 people. Um, Iranians didn't heed the warning, uh, but that's a, that indicates a more cooperative attitude than you'd expect from you know, the kind of hot war that you have with the, the uh, with Russia. Meanwhile, with China, my view is I I would hope very much that we can avoid um, a cold war with China and that we can um, make that relationship as cooperative as possible. Uh, I, I think from the Western point of view that, that there's no desire for anything but cooperation. From the Chinese point of view, it's a little different, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, like part of the reason I use the Cold War framing, you, you know, even in the context of Russia is clear, clearly Russia is involved in a in a shooting war against uh, an important ally of, of the West. But there's there's not a direct shooting war between, say, NATO yeah. and, and Russia. So it has in that sense, it has attributes in common with the last Cold War where where we would have been supporting partners that were directly engaged against the Soviet Soviet empire. Um, do, do you think like going to the political question in terms of the United States like do you think this is framing uh that is that is used or perceived by the, the two major parties in terms of my sense is that the different parties view those different adversaries in in different ways um that's pretty clearly true um we are watching uh, as we are heading toward a weekend which is the hundredth day of um the house republicans refusing to process an 168 billion dollar aid request from president biden for israel and ukraine um, uh, also, there's there's 14 billion dollars there for the border, so um, uh, the Ukrainians are running short of ammunition. I think there are quite a number of people at important levels in the Republican Party, including Donald Trump, the likely nominee, who want to see Russia win and Ukraine lose. Um, uh, the Trump-Russia relationship is a deeply mysterious one, but the consequences are not mysterious at all. That um, Trump has always been very much hostile to Ukraine, very much enthralled, uh, infatuated with Putin's Russia. Um, it's in terms of the debate happening in the Republican Party o over this. Um, there, there are, there are. My impression is there's, there's a, there's a 
kind of a broad mix, though, of, of different perspectives within the Republican Party uh, still. Uh, I looked at at kind of the the listings of Republicans for Ukraine, and there's there seems to be a real diversity of opinion there. What what do you think is are sort of the trends that are that are driving that differentiation? Yeah. yeah well, look, I, I I think the Republican foreign policy right now is about as bad. I would say it's as bad as bad can be, but I, I think it will likely get even worse. So it's not yet as bad as bad can be. Um, there are Republicans who have said great things about Ukraine. Um, Jim Risch, who's the ranking Republican on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has said really robust things. But when it comes time to convert actions into words, that, that's where they fall a little short. Um, and this 100-day embargo of aid to Ukraine, this, that is potentially war-losing 100-day embargo of aid to Ukraine. Um, there have been, there. I mean, maybe behind um, closed doors, there have been Republicans who have raised some timid opposition to it. But there's been no action. There's been no effort to force it. Um, and as uh, and even the people who are for Ukraine, they do end up, as Jim Risch did, endorsing Donald Trump, who is the leading up enemy adversary of Ukraine inside American politics. Um, I think where you're going with this line of question is to suggest the Republicans may be more robust on China than they are on Russia. But that's not true either. Um, uh, you know, yes, they, they, what, I think the real way to divide the parties is the Republicans are very eager for domestic culture wars against domestic political opponents. They are very eager to use China, China, China as uh, a cudgel against people who have views on vaccines and COVID treatment that they don't like. But actually to contain Chinese power means cooperating with other partners. China is too big for the United States to contain alone, um, nor should the United States wish to do that. You need partnerships. Well, Donald Trump canceled the Trans-Pacific Partnership with no demur from his party. Um, Donald Trump just uh, in the past week gave another of the many interviews he's given suggesting he's not enthralled with the idea of defending Taiwan should Taiwan, should China attack it. Um, he, Donald Trump did enormous damage to the U.S.-South Korea relationship. So by all, Donald Trump is in, was in favor of trade protection against China, and he certainly is in favor against of, uh, of using China as a bogey in domestic politics. But actually constructing the security architecture to keep a free and safe Pacific with allies who trade them, no, they have no interest in that. I, th I think just to generally, um, for uh, Republicans, China is an excuse, not a not a policy. Do you think um, Do you think that applies across the board, though, in within the Republican Party? Is your sense that there are that my, my impression is that actually there are there are people in both parties in the United States. That are that are very serious about you know if anything it's it's sort of one of these these rare areas of bipartisan cooperation about responding to some of the threats uh, presented presented by China and that and that may be less visible at the executive level but that it's it's happening at the at the at the level of legislators. Okay, well, well, if you you have contact, with, give me some signs of optimism because I I truly don't see it. Um, I, I don't see um, any kind of I don't see any action from the Republicans in Congress. And as a result, therefore, little action from Congress generally. Um, you know, we don't have the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, we don't have the, the defense supplemental. We don't have the level of defense spending that's that's needed. Um, there is endless culture war talk, but there's no actual policy action. And and leadership positions are going in the Republican world away from people who have been serious about foreign policy. I mean, Jim Jim Risch is serious on the Senate side, but look at the House side, um, and look at look at the current speaker. So um, I think in politics, um, what, you, what, what, what politicians say behind closed doors, I don't want to dismiss it as meaningless, but they do tend to be dominated by what they say in public. And the things they're scared to say, the things they say in private and are scared to say in public, 
tend to be the things that they say in private and are scared to do in public. So if we're looking at the doing, we say, where is the security framework in the Pacific? And we certainly see Republicans driving the betrayal of Ukraine. And by the way, the betrayal of Israel. And the Israel story is especially shameful because Republicans there do so much symbolic politics. Now, I'm a registered Republican. I've spent my life in the party. I'm not saying this because of some delight in kicking at them. But I, I think it's hard to make a case for the Republicans as a serious part, part, party um, on defense and security policy right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting perspective. It's I mean, I, I think the the debates around the debates around where the Republicans stand on Ukraine are obviously, um, you know, very, very public and out there. Um, it, the in, in terms of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, you know, is it is is it fair to acknowledge the Democrat the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was negotiated by Obama, yeah. uh, but the the uh, the Democrats in the same oh, yeah. presidential election uh, committed to to withdraw from that, and that I mean I I mean I, I I see the point you're making at the same time that that became domestically contentious in both parties for for a variety of other reasons. What we've seen is on on trade specifically, we've seen both yeah. parties shift in a protectionist direction so much yeah, so. Yeah. I think the way I dramatize this is in the hardcover edition of Hillary Clinton's memoir of her time as senator, uh, his time as Secretary of State. She listed Trans-Pacific Partnership as one of her most important accomplishments. And then it is completely deleted from the paperback edition, which I think was released not nine or 10 months later. So um, yes, on the trade protection has, has been pretty dismal. But uh, Republicans were historically the more free trade party, at least since the Second World War, at least in, certainly in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And, and you think, well, what is your security? Fr- now, maybe you are hearing things in your conversation with Republican parliamentarians that give you more encouragement than I hear. But what I see is um, that uh, people will make remarks, especially privately, that sound kind of hopeful. But when it comes time to act, the record is um, is one of appeasement, appeasement of Trump and therefore appeasement of dictators around the world. Yeah. So so let's let's talk a bit about the history of the Republican Party in in a minute because I, I want to delve into that. But before that, you had asked me earlier about uh, a basis for optimism about the idea that there is kind of bipartisan work happening on China. One area that I would point to is uh, combating uh, forced uh, forced labor, especially Uyghur forced labor. There's the uh, bipartisan initiatives around uh, Uyghur forced labor prevention. Uh, I think Canada is, is is way behind the United States on this, and there's been um, there's been cross-party collaboration to uh, to to have any goods coming out of Xinjiang um, uh, uh, considered to have forced labor involved in them, therefore not not eligible to enter the United States un- unless demonstrated otherwise. Um, on, on the issue of Uyghur rec- uh, genocide recognition, you had uh, the Trump administration and then the Biden administration both recognizing the uh, the Uyghur genocide. So I guess that that is one area where I see both both statement and uh, concrete legislative action, uh, legislative action we haven't seen in Canada uh, around around the Uyghur issue. Do you think do you think that's a, um, and that's tied yeah. into trade, but fundamentally that's a human rights uh, human rights issue. Look, um, China is this vast economy, this hugely powerful state. They don't care what resolutions you pass in uh, in your parliament. What they care about is, are there meaningful collective sanctions? The United States can, even the United States, certainly not Canada, the United States alone cannot meaningfully sanction China. Um, you, you cannot constrain China unless you work in tandem with other large economies. 
Um, during the, the true Cold War, the United States alone was a much larger economy than the Soviet Union by a factor of at least four, yeah. maybe more. Um, that's just not, I mean, the United States is a bigger economy than China and will likely stay a bigger economy, but not so overwhelmingly so that it can bend China to its will. So any kind of, if you say, I don't want allies, my, my starting point is I believe in America first. And although uh, there are op-eds in the um, early days of the Trump administration, America first does not mean America alone. America first, of course, means America alone. No one's going to be a partner with a selfish giant. So if you have an anti-alliance, if that's your fundamental organizing principle, the slogan you've given your foreign policy, no allies, please, how do you constrain China? I mean, yeah, pass resolutions by all means. Um, but it reminds me of the old joke about the newspaper editor somewhere in Ireland who writes an editorial warning the czar of the consequences of his actions. The czar is not going to listen to the Bangor Screaming Eagle or whatever the paper was, the cooey rough times, unless it's backed by meaningful economic um, coercive power. And that means working with allies. And, and that's been, that's the, the central proposition. I mean, and this, it's in the slogan, America first. Once you, once you've committed to that, you've, uh, you've, you've basically abdicated from um, imposing any kind of nonviolent will on the rest of the world because no one will be your partner. Hmm. I, I, I would note, you know, Nikki Haley, a, a big part of her messaging on foreign p policy has been America needs friends. And that that seems to uh, align with the principle you're you're talking about. And and uh, I, I certainly, you know, very much agree with the principle that uh, collaboration among among uh, like-minded democracies is going to be essential uh, in the in the dynamics that we uh, that we face. Um, and I, I mean, like on, on the Uyghur issue, we we've been a bit behind in Canada because shipments are stopped, are sanctioned from going into the United States that can come into Canada. But but we need to be coordinated as the bottom line. Look, if if Nikki Haley were somehow to emerge as the Republican nominee, um, obviously we would be in a very different world, a much better world. But that looks, I mean, I wish it were otherwise, but it doesn't look likely to happen, does it? I, uh, I I'm not as clo close an observer enough to, to make predictions, but uh, I mean, what, and we'll, um, yeah. well, let's we'll, hope we'll see. Yeah, I I, um, I want to go back a bit to the history because if 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 I recall, you had a uh, a role in the in the George W. Bush administration, yeah. and it's been interesting to kind of observe the debates that have happened, uh, kind of what happened. At, uh, after 9/11, the response to the Bush administration and how the Republican Party has has kind of what what has been the the kind of tale of of uh, of those events? Um, it, it seems now that um, that that so many of the kind of it, the, the policies that you know promotion of democracy around the world that were championed by that administration uh, were um, were I, I think have been have been rightly or wrongly judged to have to have been failures, and that has led to some of the response. Um, Looking back, I'm I'm curious how much you think of where we are now as kind of the yeah. um, the tale of those events and and what what maybe lessons uh, could have been learned differently compared to the the, the practical the, the the lessons that seem to have been absorbed uh, in yeah. that. In now, the debate. If, now, if you want to know how the Republican Party got from where it was to where it is, the Bush administration is part of the story. Um, disappointment and frustration with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and of course the shock of the uh, world financial crisis. Um, so. Uh, which left, so the Bush administration left um, amid pre, what was until COVID, the worst economic collapse since the Great Depression. The COVID economic collapse was, was, was bigger even than that. So that, that had a, that's a, a huge part of the story. But what I would also, what I would caution before, I, I always, 
urge when people are thinking about trying to explain something. You need to explain, have an explanation that works both backwards and forwards in time and across different countries in time. Because what we see is at the I mean, the, George W. Bush was not president of England. He was not president of Germany. He was not president of France. Um, and yet right of center parties in all of those countries went through an evolution that's been quite similar to, to hmm. the evolution in the United States. So I, I don't want to deny um, that the feeling right or wrong, that, the, that those policies had not worked, the feeling, the shock of the Great Recession, obviously that played an important, a big part in changing the United States, making Americans more um, protectionist, um, making Republicans especially more averse to foreign uh, connections, and making them more contemptuous of ideals and democracy and, and more open to someone who said, yeah, the, the goal should have been to ban Muslims and take the oil. That's, that's what our foreign policy after 9-11 should have been, ban Muslims, take the oil, the Trump policy. Um, but the explanation also needs to cover what's going on in pure democracies that didn't have George W. Bush as president. And so I think things like the impact of social media, the aging of the baby boom generation, um, the, 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 um, uh, uh, the influence of um, Russian disinformation and investment in right of center parties, those are also part of the story, um, but without denying exactly the importance of what you said. I think there is something about the the aging of the population that is really significant here because um, there does seem to be something, I mean, I, I'm over 60, so I, I'm talking here about myself, I'm not pointing fingers, but I do notice there's a kind of increasing pessimism and fear of the world that seems to, or can overtake people as they get older. And as the population ages, and especially as right of center parties age, um, that uh, they become more susceptible. And I think people over 60 have also had more difficulty navigating what is true and false on the internet. Um, and so they, they have been disproportionately vulnerable both to criminal scams, but also to ideological disinformation. Hmm. That's, that, that's, uh, some, those are some really interesting hypotheses and, and ones that I'll, um, I'll, I'll reflect more on, but, but um, just coming back to the sort of the particular trends and discussion around around foreign policy because it, it seems that there are sort of parallel trends in the United States and other other center right right parties but but there are some differences like I, I don't think we're seeing the same well maybe 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 in I guess in, in European parties it tends to manifest itself in in other parties outside of of the existing less in change in the existing center right party and and more in the emergence of the Christian, of Democrat, the Christian Democrats shrink and extremist parties grow. Um, but, the, conser the conservative party shrinks and other other extremist parties grow. So because in countries where it's easier to start new parties, yeah, the United States, because it's so difficult to start a new party, the change tends to happen within parties. And look right. at this in Canada, where um, you, there, there was the, a flurry of a far-right populist party, anti-vax, pro-Russia, anti-Ukraine. Um, in, if the Canadian political system worked a little differently, that force might have grown inside the Conservative Party instead of in a different party outside the Conservative Party. Hmm. Um, so, but then to, to, to zero in on on kind of the idealism of the Bush administration, the idea that um, I mean, this is this is from Tony Blair, but the the, the quote that captures it, I think, is the idea that anywhere, anytime, ordinary people are given the chance to choose, they always choose freedom, not tyranny, democracy, not dictatorship, the rule of law, not the, the rule of secret police, and that the uh, the foreign policy of the free world could be to align itself with the aspirations of people everywhere for freedom. Um, and, uh, you know, is, is, there, is there space for that 
perspective may be pursued with a different set of set yeah. of tactics, but that same idealism and optimism that um, that that did inform efforts that were undertaken in the in the post 9-11 era. Well, I'm not familiar with the particular speech that you quote, but I, I do notice I do recall that in the rhetoric of the time and I didn't this is not I was part of the rhetoric of the time. I tried to be more careful, but um, there was a bad habit of not leaving yourself um, escape hatches from the things you were saying, like a, a, a political speech um, communicates what you want to say, but it doesn't lock you into things that are impossible. I mean, it's obviously not true that if, if that quote is accurate, anywhere, anytime that people choose, they choose wisely. Is that, that's not, doesn't describe my choices. God knows how many foolish choices I've made. Does it describe your choices? And, and if we, I, I think people get wiser when you put them in larger groups, but we're still very fallible creatures. We make mistakes all the time and who would deny that? Um, but, what, what I think was true then and remains true now is that um, freedom is really a force multiplier for society. Um, I, I, I wrote a big article for The Atlantic now four or five years ago, but just be um, predicting that, um, that China would not turn out to be as formidable in the 2020s as people in the late 2010s insisted it would. And it had a provocative title, China is a paper dragon. But the thesis of the article was that China's, that there are a lot in, a, in a, an unfree society um, the newspapers are always telling people good news. They're always, you know, the, the, the parades yeah. look impressive, the, the, the outsides of the missiles gleam. And then intelligence tells you, well, the missiles are actually, you know, they don't work and they're, they're, the fuel's been corrupted. And the, 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 the mistake-catching mechanism that is democracy, that is a free society, they don't have. And so they make a lot of mistakes and they find out about them only, only too late, as, as the Russians have demonstrated in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine turned out, although... It's what one quarter the size. It doesn't have the military industrial base, doesn't have the energy resources. And yet in the battlefield, um, they've demonstrated a, a creativity and an ability to evolve that the Russians did not have because of their unfree society. So um, does democracy always yield good results? Obviously not. Is it um, going to work better more often than not than other systems? I, I think the answer to that, I think we all believe the answer to that is yes. Yeah. So. So, so I, I guess where I'm getting to with with this discussion is, um, and I'm curious if you if you agree with this that at at certain points uh, in the past we could say that there was um, an excess of optimism, um, but we may now be living through a period where there is an excess of pessimism. Yeah. That yeah. that we that we need to um, find the mean between extremes, let's say, and be and be optimistic about the progress democracy can make in the world, but not to yeah. be presumptive. That's so, that's so true. And it's, it's one of the reasons I keep, I do a lot of speaking inside Canada, um, that I, I think it's really important to keep in mind when you look at some of the scary things in the United States, that, that you know, Ukraine has had a consistent majority of American public opinion behind it as measured by polls. Um, the Republican position on Ukraine is unpopular. And the Republicans keep asserting that they are the populist party, that they are the working class party. None of that is, is true when you go measure it. And the anti-Trump coalition has always been bigger. I mean, there's not been a day when the anti-Trump coalition was not bigger than the pro-Trump coalition. There, and when you put it to the ballot box tax, the anti-Trump coalition got 3 million more votes in 2016, 7 million more votes in 2020, beat, beat the pro-Trump coalition in 2018, beat them again in um, not exactly in the House of Representatives, but in all the down-ballot states, uh, in the governor's races, Senate races, uh, state legislatures, uh, beat them, beat it again in 2022. Um, uh, 
the pro-Trump coalition had a bad 2023. There were just a few elections, but they lost every one that was important, a lot of them judicial races. And I think we're shaping up to see that that rule repeat itself in 2024. So, um, you know, I, 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 I invoke often the opening scene of The Godfather, I believe in America. Um, mm. And uh, there's a lot of irony about that opening scene. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but, I, but I, uh, I mean, the guy. I, I mean, I think to be fair, that. isn't the line "I believed in America" past tense? Maybe I believed in yeah. America, right? <laughs> <laughs> and he's saying it to a gangster. But, right. but, unironically, I, I, I do. It's a beautiful and, movie, though. It's, yeah. Anyway, un- unironically, I do, and I, I, I believe in the democratic idea, and, and, um, and what we've seen when. You try to do this reactionary authoritarianism, which has been kind of the vogue on a lot of intellectual circles on the right, is they, the, the people behind it usually turn out to be crooks. I mean, that's the story about Viktor Orban, for example. I mean, people think of him as this great cultural war, but what he is first and foremost is a crook um, who's you know ends up owning the largest Habsburg, what was the estate of the Hobbs, last Habsburg emperor, and somehow man, migrated into the hands of the Orban family. Crook, 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 crook. And that's true of Donald Trump. That's true of so many of these, these figures. They turn out to be crooks above all who mobilize people's emotions to distract them from the real project, which is basking in adulation and stealing public money. Hmm. Um, I, I, I wanted to drill down on, on the populism question. Um, I guess actually, but before I do that, in terms of the optimism, pessimism piece, I, I was speaking sort of specifically to the capacities of the free world in the world, right? That, um, that, that how do we have like a realistic view of our capacities that, um, um, because it seems like th- those that are critics of supporting Ukraine are peddling a kind of false pessimism. Like you hear, you hear people say like, well, you know, Russia's going to win eventually anyways, they're bigger, which, which is, is, uh, like, there's no reason to believe that, uh, given, given, the capacity Ukrainians have shown for 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 fighting. Uh, so, in terms of our capacity in the world, recognizing that we can do things, but that we can't do everything, that we can't be everywhere. That that maybe the um, the lesson of the early two thousands was that that there, there's a there's a point of overextension where uh, where, um, where 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 you reach a limit, even where you reach a, a limit in terms of political acceptability. Right. Well, I think the lesson the lesson of the um, of the two thousands was. You have you can't do not deceive yourself about what the cost of things is likely to be. I think the the, the main thing that went wrong right. in Iraq, from my point of view, was um, the information was there as to what the Iraq War would really cost in terms of men and time and energy. Um, and when the bill was presented, the Bush administration flinched and said, "It's not what we would achieve from this war is not worth." 350,000 soldiers for five years, which is what the Pentagon planning process, I believe, if I recall right, said. 350,000 men right away, and then maybe half that force for a long period of time, and tens of billions of dollars. And I I think if if people had honestly confronted the price tag, then it would never have happened in the first place. And the surest proof of that is that that there was a lot of effort to conceal the price tag. So so you need to be, face it, is is, is each of the things that as you said, the United States and its allies can do a lot, but they can't do everything. Is each decision really worth it? And that begins with honest accounting. Um, and once you do the honest accounting, then it's amazing. Um, then things become a lot clearer. I mean, with Ukraine, um, the United States has, depending on, on the books, spent, I think, something like $100 billion to date over the two and a half years. So you work it out on an annualized basis, and that's about a tenth of a penny of U.S. GDP. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, it's bought a lot. 
um, and it, it saved a country, and it may be able to actually ultimately turn the tide of, of war. Um, uh, but you you have to face you know because in that case the pro Ukraine coalition is is a much larger. I mean Russia is bigger than Ukraine, but Ukraine's friends together exactly. have a lot more have a lot more heft than Russia and its yeah. friends do. Um, so yes, honest accounting, decide whether things are really worth it, have priorities. Um, that that's all good governance, both abroad as well as at home. Yeah, and I guess uh, you know part part of democracy is that. Um, the, the people have to buy into whatever whatever the the leaders uh, perceive their good ideas to be right they have to they have to actually make the case uh, and and do so convincingly um, or else uh, or else it's not yeah. going to be sustainable over time yeah. uh, on, on the issue of populism so so you as a Canadian you be, being in the United States having a sense of both sides of the border um, I, I think about the different ways that populism has been used the, the term just just in my lifetime yeah. uh, Preston Manning's Reform Party uh, had that was 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 considered populist, but it but it had a kind of um, a real kind of optimistic populism associated with it. Of course, there's there's a there's a populist tradition in the United States that includes the left and the right. Um, it, it, we did an episode previously with a with a an author uh, who who wrote a history of William Jennings Bryan's career. Oh, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. So looking at looking Very at. Cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah, excellent book, and uh, people can go back and and find that episode. But he described populism as as kind of a a political language uh, that that can be deployed in service of a of a broad array of causes and uh, and in very different contexts. Um, do you do you see do you see populism as a as a a kind of political language that can be deployed in different different contexts, or are you kind of critical of populism uh, in general? I think that the Kazan language is very astute because it is when we talk, say populism, we all think we know what we mean, but it turns out the longer we talk about it, the more we real. Not only do we just mean different things amongst ourselves, but we ourselves may not exactly know what the word means. Uh, so it's a it's a treacherous word because again, it seems so clear until you have to lean on it, and then it gets a lot hazier and, and foggier. Um, and the description of it as a language is a really incisive point because. One of the things you have to take into account with populism is it isn't that popular. Um, you know, Preston Manning never won an election. Um, William Jennings Bryan never won an election. Uh, you know, Donald Trump consistently got fewer votes than any of the people arrayed against him. So, so, so you have this paradox: it's populist, but it's not popular. How, how can that be? And I think the answer is, as, as Kazan says, it's because this is a language; it's a style, um, and uh, it reflects. Um, mistrust of expertise, um, mistrust of institutions. Uh, at its um, most creative, it can uh, reveal respect for the good instincts of, of people working together. And that I, I absolutely share that faith that um, the species is wise and people are basically of goodwill and, you can, and there's a lot of idealism and goodness in people that can be, that can be pulled together. But um, if they, that, that's true. Uh, where it becomes bad is that when you say, well, you know, we don't need, you know, we, we don't want to listen to the doctors about a new pandemic. Uh, we don't want to listen to the scientists about going to the moon. We, we, don't, we don't want to listen to the trained economists about how to run a central bank. You know, then you say, well, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Look, what, you're going to use the Ouija board? I mean, how, how are you planning on running things if you don't use people who are tra with trained expertise? You know, I think one of the things um, in our own lives, whenever um, we have trouble, one of the reasons we would go to um, a therapist or a member of the clergy 
It's not because the therapist, remember the clergy is is so brilliantly smarter than anybody else, but that you have you have a problem and you you're the one case. Maybe someone else in your family has a problem, but the therapist or the clergy professional has seen thousands of this problem. And so even if they're not you know cleverer than anybody else, they just have a bigger base of information with which to tell you you know this will work itself out or maybe it won't. This is serious. You know your child will grow out of this phase. Oh you know this is going to be difficult for you. And in the same way that trained professionals, people with expertise, they just know more than the rest of us do. And, and that's a resource. Um, and in societies where education is substantially publicly funded, that's a resource that we've all paid for. So why don't we all use it? Mm -hmm. So just, just to reflect on that point. So, so uh, de Tocqueville uh, in Democracy in America, you know, he, he talks about kind of the distinction between democratic and aristocratic systems and, and the things that it, in his perception work better or worse in, in each. And he he argues that um, with with um, aristocratic or using modern language more el elitist systems, uh, you're more likely to have alignment between kind of um, means and ends. That that once you've determined what the ends you're going to you're going to uh, achieve, a more elite driven society is more efficient at figuring out the way towards that that end. And you could say perhaps that's because of expertise. But he also suggests that um, one of the, the problems with more aristocratic or elite driven societies is that the ends that they choose may, may not take into consideration the the well-being of the of the broadest uh, number. Uh, so so that um, in, in, in more democratic, more decentralized societies, uh, you you um, uh, you, you you move towards towards the ends that reflect the will of of, of a larger number. Um, just, what, what do you think of that that idea? I just yeah. point out that it's an interesting reading of Tocqueville, but you began by stealing a base that you shouldn't have stolen, um, which is the, the the concept of elitism was invented and the word was coined as exactly the antithesis of an aristocratic system. The the word um, it comes from the French verb to choose, and originally um, the first use of the term is in military technology. So what would happen is you'd have, um, you know, the, the troops would be formed in battalions. But you'd have a special mission. And so you'd go to the uh, commander of each battalion and say, give me your two best men. And we're going to form a task force. Mm -hmm. And those those men were elu, chosen. They were the elite. They were those who right. were chosen. Um, they were the best of the best. And and um, and the term begins to flourish in the early 19th century to mean merit. As a, I mean, right. you know, an aristocrat is just a randomly chosen person. Um, who is born into, you know, Eric and Eric and Eric Trump, that's an aristocrat, born right. to wealth, born to position. He's a thunderhead. Um, uh, what elitism means is that that you have screening mechanisms and you find some way. I mean, the Marines are the Marine Corps is elitist, the, the uh, SAS, those are elitist organizations. And, um, you know, that the, uh, the Nobel Prize is an elitist institution. Um, you know, I, I remember once seeing a talk by a, an eminent physicist where a, a student was unwise enough to begin by saying, well, one person's opinion is, as, one person's guess is as good as another's. And this physicist said, no, my guess is a lot better than your guess. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. It's still a guess. Um, but so what we, what we want to do, we have, you know, what we've built, you know, we are not, these, we, I mean, there are large elements of aristocracy in our society of, un, of unearned privilege, of random yeah. distribution of benefits, but that's a different thing. And populists have a funny way. Uh, of um, conflating them and so-called populists. And it's often, there's often a base stolen where people who actually are born 
who have no claim to any outstanding merit like the Trumps um, will then say, aha, I, my enemy are those who achieve their um, position of trust or respect in society by talent and effort. And those are different things. Um, and I don't know what Tocqueville would say if he said, what we propose to do is um, you know, go to the moon and not trust the moon landing experts. Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> and I, 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 and I don't mean to like what, what I like about the Tocqueville's uh, writing is that um, he, he, he does really seem to seek to explore and play with ideas, looking at yeah. the, the pros and cons and, and not to uh, sort of dogmatically preach one, one conclusion or another. I, and the distinction you made between aristocracy and elite, between aristocracy and elitism is I think an, an important one to reflect on. And I wonder if maybe where people land in, 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 in this sort of area depends on how much they perceive those who hold leading positions in our society as being um, the kinds of elites you describe, you know, having, having earned their position and justified their position through their work versus uh, aristocrats, people who have ended up in their positions through uh, either through birth or through some combination of, uh, of, of accident. That, that probably informs where people land in, in these conversations. Are you familiar with the writer Toby Young who contributes to The uh, uh, Spectator? Uh, no, not really. He, he writes about Hollywood. His okay. father is a man named Michael Young. And Michael Young coined the phrase, the term meritocracy, back in the late 50s, early 60s, um, as a kind of joke word, actually. Um, and to mean this, and, but he wrote a book about it. And, he, and people think, looking at the book, the book is a book in praise of meritocracy. But, to, but Michael Young actually predicted that meritocracy would be by far the most um, unpopular system and would be vulnerable to exactly the kind of challenges we've seen. Because it was one thing um, when people lived in a world in which, you know, the guy who lived in the big house, you knew it was a fluke of nature. It, it, you know, right. he might assert all kinds of things, but you didn't have to believe that he was a different kind of person from you. He, was, he just got lucky. Um, whereas, you know, if you say, okay, you need to listen to Dr. Fauci because he knows more than you. Well, what do you mean he knows more than me? That's insulting. I know a lot, I think. Um, and and that people don't like to be reminded that some people, in fact, really do know more. That, that you should that you should listen to the moon landing people. You should listen to the uh, the virologists. That they 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 don't know everything. They can't and and they have to be. And the point of a democratic system is, you know, you keep you have to balance. Like like during the pandemic, um, we had these two warring rules. One who said, let the experts on epidemics decide everything, and let and let them decide nothing. But the experts what what we really needed to say, they are the experts on the pandemics are experts on pandemic indeed, but they're not the experts on the trade-offs. And yeah, and, I think that's and, a very good point. And with respect to your the reason, I am a huge admirer of politicians and a huge respecter of the work politicians do. And when people say, what are politicians? The politicians are experts in the science of gaining public consent. Um, and mediating just at their best, they mediate disagreements. You have people around the table, and this is certainly the story of Canada. Um, you have all of these clashing regional, ethnocultural interests, urban, rural, French, English, uh, west, east, cent uh, east and center. And, and, and left to their own devices, people might get really angry with each other. Might, you know, the anger might destroy the country. So you need a group of people who are good at um, mediating um, and good at listening uh, good at selling, good at deal-making. Um, and that's such an important skill. And I think one of the things that, I think partly because, again, this is a, a Trump legacy, um, that 
there was no one, uh, I think one of the things that really went wrong in the pandemic is there was no one who said, who said, you know, you're, you're making such great point. If, if everything were free in this world, if there were no costs, then you're right, we would make things perfectly safe. But there are costs and we need to, we need to value those too. Um, and particularly, I mean, the cost of lost learning to school children. Um, instead of the, the people who yeah. wanted to say we should protect the school, no one said we, ex we should accept the risks to the adults to protect the children. What they would either say is because there are no risks to adults, we should protect it. Uh, we therefore don't, you know, we should we should not, you know, we can let the children go to school or else because we are so afraid because we value the risks at infinity. Um, we don't we don't we're not alert to the trade offs. And you, that, it's the same thing we said about foreign policy. Good policy begins by the inevitability of trade off, the inevitability of disappointment. Um, the lack of perfection, and you need people, politicians, to make the final decisions after listening to the experts. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think just showing up what you said, um, and I think this is an important point in the pandemic, uh, that one of the factors driving, quote unquote, distrust in elites is people sometimes being qualified as experts on things that are not their area of expertise. Yeah. One, one obvious example of this is, uh, it sort of really sticks in my mind, this debate we're having in the House of Commons about um, about the government's euthanasia or medically assisted dying, as they call it, uh, regime, uh, when it is and is not acceptable for uh, for the state to, to facilitate, to, to, to allow the medical system to facilitate yeah. the, the killing of a person. And... Um, and and one MP when I when I asked him what was like fundamentally a a, a moral question, um, he said, "Well, I I would I would trust the experts on that, right?" And uh, you know, of course, of course, go go to the experts for technical scientific questions, right? Once once you've you've agreed you you should pursue a particular medical course, you you want a doctor to do that, but but surely yeah. the place of a legislature is to deliberate about foundational moral questions, and when you have people. Uh, that are sending the the wrong questions to the wrong experts, um, and and in some cases those those quote unquote experts being prepared to comment on things outside of their their areas of expertise that that does seem to contribute to some of the problems. You're so right, and and that's a perfect example. Uh, there is um, you have a person who's very ill, and the expert can say the outlook is you're probably going to have X number of months to Y number of months, and the pain is probably going to get really serious around this certain point. So I can tell you that, but of course I'm a suffering fallible. I can't, what to do about that? I, I don't, I mean, I belong to the same suffering fallible human race that you do. I don't have any special insight into that. Now, there, uh, and in fact, a uh, pastor is likely because the pastor has seen many more suffering people. Um, and the pastor may also, of course, you know, people often discover great meaning in moments of suffering, the pastor might say. And maybe that's not something you want to completely deny yourself because you will have, or maybe not, maybe not. Right. But but there's no technologist who can answer those questions. Right. The attempt to make them technological yeah. questions is, yeah, that, and that's very discrediting, as you say. Or or when the question of um, how much learning loss should we accept in the young in order to protect right. uh, the old. There's no expert on that question. Yeah. So, so, so bridging back to in terms of foreign policy, there there is this interaction of values questions with um, with expertise yeah. questions. There's a question of what what do we want to achieve, and, and that's and that's a, a values question. And there's the question of of how do we how do we best achieve it. Um, David, it, it's fascinating talking to you. I, I want to just in the time we have left uh, steer back to, to some of the questions I had thought in advance around around foreign policy. And I wanted to ask you about about the Democrats uh, and and Israel. So um, the the Biden administration, the Democratic Party is is uh, 
certainly more friendly to Israel than any uh, center left party in, in in other countries around the world. Um, you have, I suspect, many, many people on the sort of further left within the Democratic Party who who aren't um, necessarily in line with the Biden administration's position. What, what do you think is, is the impact of that? And, and what are the divisions more broadly in the Democratic Party on foreign policy? Well, I worry about a world above all where because the Republicans have dropped out of the foreign policy debate, um, the Democrats become the only game in town and so don't, don't have to face real scrutiny. And, and because their scrutiny comes from this far left, which is not only very irresponsible, but extremely unpopular, we don't have real debate. So, so on the, how was it that both Israel and the United States were surprised on October 7th? How? There are thousands. Of, this is not 9-11, 19 guys with a few paymasters. This is a conspiracy involving thousands of people. Massive time. You were surprised? Okay, first, understand you need to, uh, to hold unity together while dealing with the emergency. But this is a really serious intelligence failure by, by both countries. And following on the intelligence failure in Afghanistan, um, you know, if, if you had a, an effective Republican Party, they wouldn't be holding these stupid hearings about Hunter Biden. You know, why is the president's son a sad drug addict who tried to trade on his family name, uh, like so many other sad presidential relatives? So how was it that after 20 years, you did not know enough about Afghanistan, that you did not know what would happen with the Afghan army and the Afghan state? And that's what responsible, effective opposition parties would do. You know, um, there are real questions to be asked about um, uh, the slap on the wrist approach to protecting commerce in the Red Sea. Now, I, I understand that you don't want a shooting war with Iran. I, I completely agree with that. But when Iran starts shooting missiles to interrupt world commerce, that requires a very decisive response to say that this must stop. And anyone involved in this is going to be really sorry. Um, so um, we have this game where one party's dropped out or is enthralled to its most fanatic elements. And the other party then gets to play this um, slap around, you know, slap the bozo game with, with a, a, an irresponsible far left that's pretty unpopular. And that makes it look like, you know, the, the, center, the mainstream of the Democratic Party are the only managers you can have. And, then, and they make lots of mistakes. And there are a lot of things to... Uh, how was, uh, they, they, were, they, they knew that the Ukraine attack was coming. They, they warned the Ukrainians that the Russians were going to attack. And in the three months beforehand, the American flows of supplies to Ukraine were very inadequate. So if you knew this thing was coming, why didn't you do more to help Ukraine in advance when it might even have deterred the Russians? Yeah, incidentally, I, I think that's a, that's a critically important question um, that, um, that you know, many of the people that are... are uh, rightly talking about supporting Ukraine today, um, you know, there are questions to be asked about failures of deterrence, essentially telegraphing that, well, you know, if if you invade Ukraine, we'll be unhappy. But, uh, you know, and, and in fact, the, I think the, the, the Western response has been much stronger post-invasion than what was telegraphed in advance of the invasion. And, and by the way, that is often the most dangerous. One of the, the things that those of us who worry about weakness say is that the real danger of telegraphing weakness it's bad if you telegraph weakness and are weak, but in a strange way, it's worse if you telegraph weakness and are strong. Because if you telegraph weakness, you, you get bullied, but at least there's there's peace after the bullying. If you telegraph weakness and you're strong, then there's a fight. Then you right. you've actually misled the aggressor. That's that, that's that's how you get into wars. It's you, you're right. sending the message that uh, that you're not going to fight, and then feeling like you need to respond. And that's why it's so important to be clear about Taiwan. Um, as, yes. as unpromising as defending Taiwan looks, and I agree, it looks really, really unpromising. I, I, um, 
I think the, Ch the Chinese deeply value their global trade relations. This is not the Soviet Union. This is an economy that is plugged into the whole world system. If they understand that this is going to be expensive, they will, and they have lots of other alternatives, including bribing Taiwanese politicians. There are a lot of, you know, things that we might not like, but that are normal politics, um, normal, you know, not pleasant, but out, but don't lead to great power conflict. If we, if we are unclear, we could be in a situation that is much worse than a situation that would happen if we actually talked more clearly and communicated more accurately what's in our own minds and hearts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and looking back at the, the Biden administration's sort of foreign policy performance in general, um, you know, you, you can d debate to what extent failure of deterrence was involved in the start of the Ukraine war. Um, there was the there was the pullout of Afghanistan that, that you mentioned, um, and, and now the situation in the Middle East. And uh, I, I guess it seems your, your point is that there have been have been failures, but there also hasn't been an effective process of sort of forcing and accounting for those failures. And look, and failures sometimes, I don't even know, failures are inevitable. I mean, I, I, it may be that the answer to why were you surprised by Afghanistan is a very convincing answer. They may have a good answer. Um, and it may be, look, this thing couldn't be saved. This day was coming sooner or later. We might as well rip the bandage off and get it done. They're made, I'm not saying they're even in the wrong, but, but I'm just saying that they got they got a completely easy ride because um, their opponents have vanished off into uh, Marjorie Taylor Greenland. Hmm. I mean, in fairness, she, she's she's not representative of the. I mean, there, there's there's a there's a spectrum of perspective on on foreign well, policy issues within the party. He's not representative, but Mike Michael Johnson now and Kevin McCarthy beforehand were much more frightened of her. Than they were of any ten more rational and intelligent members of their caucus. Hmm. Well, on Afghanistan, is there um, like is there active discussion or debate about what can be done in the in the future of Afghanistan in the United States? Or because I mean, I, I think there there would be there would be people in both parties that would have would have uh, I guess been on both sides of that issue. Yeah, is, it, is it sort of a dead think, dead issue now? I think in the political world, the list of problems is now so long. That Afghanistan. I mean, I'm, I'm, there are think tank experts um, in, in, um, who, who ponder it. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not one of them. But you know, uh, Afghanistan, as I understand, is a country sort of um, made up of bits that might otherwise have been in Iran, might otherwise have been in Pakistan, might otherwise have been in um, other Central Asian republics. And so it's this is very unstable grouping of different societies that speak different kinds of languages, different degrees of urbanization, different degrees of Islamic commitment. Um, and so it just, you know, um, ferments in ways that are very unstable. And, you, you know, until you imagine a world in which the partners around Afghanistan are more stable and you have a different kind of Iran and a different kind of Pakistan, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to know. And I, I don't criticize the Biden administration for wanting to wind up that commitment, because if you're going to have an American force in Afghanistan, to supply it, there are only two routes. One is by sea to Pakistan and then by road through Pakistan, which makes the Pakistanis your captors, or by sea to Russia and then by the Russian rail network through the Russian and the Central Asian Republics to Afghanistan from the north, in which case they have a grip on your aorta. Um, and both of those are kind of bad people to be dependent upon. So I, I get the strategic reason to wrap up, um, but the question is, could it have been we never got answers to why did it wrap up so very badly. And maybe, as I said, I don't want to be unfair, maybe that was in inevitable, it had to be that way, uh, but maybe not. And where 
that's exactly what you would think the Senate, especially when they moved into the hands of the opposition parties after uh, the House after 2022, that's, that would be, have been productive work for the House Republicans to do. Why were we caught by surprise in Afghanistan? And now, why were we caught by surprise the world on October 7th? Mm -hmm. Um, David, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. You've been very generous with your time, and there's been so many other other threads we could pull. Can I can I just uh, give you the last word on a on a maybe a bit of a quirky question? But but let let's suppose s s some candidate that was in your mind the perfect person became the president and called on you for uh, for advice about responding to the world situation. Uh, what would what would be sort of the key points of your um, your foreign policy advice to kind of the you know, regardless of, of party personality, the, the ideal candidate comes to you and says, what should I do about, about the world as it is? Well, that's a very complicated question and potentially another hour of monologue. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying that one very simple thing. Um, I think our ability to do good on the world depends on our, the feeling of cultural, economic, social self-confidence we have at home. And um, when the democracies feel, believe in themselves, then they do most good in the world. And I think a driver of many of the problems we've had has been in the 21st century, after the successes of the 1990s, after the victory in the Cold War, you had this letdown. And as, as you said, I mean, Iraq was part of it. The great financial crisis was part of it. The aging of the population, I believe, is part of it. But there's just, there's just been a mood of we don't believe in ourselves anymore. So what I would say to this president is, you're, like Ronald Reagan, your, your mm -hmm. first mission, mission is to restore self-belief. And once you've done that, you'll be amazed what you can do. And if you fail to do that, no matter what, how materially strong you are, the failure of self-defeat will be crippling. Yeah, that's a that's a very powerful point to end on. And uh, uh, thank you for a, such a philosophically rich uh, conversation, David. It's been it's been great uh, chatting with you. And uh, I hope we'll have more chances to do this in the future. And that's from Ottawa. Okay, excellent. Uh, and for those those listening, we we come out with episodes about every uh, every two weeks, and uh, so so please stay tuned. If if you like this episode, uh, share and and subscribe, uh, and leave a review, and we'll be back with another episode in fourteen days. Bye bye. <laughs>